Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Rodger Bregman stunned the world when he went to Davos and gave billionaires an unexpected wake up call, berating the wealthiest at the World Economic Forum for tax avoidance. This is my first time at Davos, and, uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, 1,500 private jets have flown in here to hear. Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. So (laughs) something needs to change here. I mean, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. In his latest book, Bregman shares an ultimately hopeful view of human nature. This book really, really challenged me. I read it and realized that I firmly believed that the world was set up with all its laws to protect us from ourselves. I read it and found myself face-to-face with my own discomfort that comes when a firmly held belief is challenged. I didn't even realize that I felt deep down that all the selfishness and self-interest in the world would prevail without the laws and power would absolutely lead to a lot of the flies outcome if that book were replicated in the real world. All notions that this book demolishes. What I am saying is that What you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if we assume that most people are selfish and evil and violent, then we'll start to design a society that will basically create that kind of behavior in other people. Readers, I am reading Humankind by Rutger Bregman, twice nominated for the European Press Prize and whose last book, Utopia for Realists, was a New York Times bestseller. Rutger Bregman tells me more now. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and for most of us, our experience is supermarket shelves swept clean. Mm-hmm. Maybe because people are reacting from their playbook of disaster movies, or maybe we're all thinking about our own survival. So what do you make of what you're seeing? Your book argues for a different way of looking at humankind. It says it's realistic and revolutionary to assume that people are good. What do you think this crisis is showing us about human nature? Yeah, so the standard assumption for many people is that after a disaster strikes, that people sort of reveal their true selves. And there's, and there's, a, there's an old theory within Western culture that we call veneer theory. And the idea here is that civilization is only a thin veneer. And that as soon as something happens, a war or a natural disaster or an epidemic, that people become really selfish. You know, civilization is suddenly gone and people, you know, show that they're really animals or beasts. And this is a very influential theory within Western culture. You know, it goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, the concept of original sin, the idea that we we're all born as sinners. Uh, you find it with the Enlightenment philosophers, and I think it's at the heart of capitalism as well, the modern capitalism, the idea that most people are selfish. But the interesting thing is that in the past 15 to 20 years, is that scientists from very diverse disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, psychologists, sociologists, have all moved to a much more hopeful view of human nature. And so what sociologists have 
shown, for example, is that actually what happens after a disaster is you see this explosion of altruism and cooperation. And I think that if you zoom out a little bit, then that's also what you see happening right now around the globe. Sure, there are some exceptions out there. I mean, there's some selfishness. There are some people hoarding, you know, stuff from supermarkets, etc. Mm -hmm. But if you zoom out a little bit, I think that most behavior is pretty good. Let's look at some of the evidence in your book. What does our ancient past tell us really about our instinct to cooperate? Okay, so the standard story that I was told when I went to school was that when we were, you know, nomadic hunter-gatherers, as we were for the vast majority of our history, uh, more than 200,000 years, we lived these lives that were nasty, brutish, and short, as the famous philosopher Thomas Hobbes uh, described it. So, so our past was pretty terrible, but then we had civilization. You know, then we invented agriculture and we invented, you know, cities and we started living in villages and, and we invented the wheel and money. And so every milestone of civilization made life a little bit better. This is the standard story that I was always told. But while researching for this book, I discovered that actually it's pretty much the opposite. So what archaeologists and anthropologists have shown in the past couple of years is that actually nomadic hunter-gatherers, what, you know, what we were for most of our history, had a pretty relaxed, good lifestyle. There's no evidence for war during history. They had a relatively short work week, around 20 to 30 hours, uh, very little hierarchy, inequality between the sexes as well. So it was, as one anthropologist calls it, the original affluent society. But then everything went wrong when we started this experiment that we call civilization. So when we settled down, uh, we got all these hierarchies. You see the history of war beginning. The archeological evidence is pretty clear there. Um, you see that people's health deteriorates, you know, all the infection diseases like, you know, COVID-19, for example, but also other infection diseases like uh, measles and the plague, you name it. These are all modern civilized diseases because we live so close to our animals nowadays. Um, so, yeah, the, it's a very different picture than the standard story that, you know, they taught me in school. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. I want to take you to a, a chapter in your book that is really eye-opening, the death of Catherine Susan Genovese. And for most students of sociology or psychology, that's sort, sort mm -hmm. of the ground bedrock of understanding bystander effect and how our behavior changes when we are in groups. Um, does your book make an argument for the goodness of, of individuals or the goodness of people as we, when we exist in groups? Does it account for the difference there? Well, I don't think you can separate these from each other because human beings are fundamentally social animals, right? We crave connection and companionship. We cannot stand loneliness. I mean, the medical effect of loneliness is similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, right? And this is our true superpower. Uh, on an individual level, human beings are not that special. You know, we're not very good at math. We're not very smart. If you do intelligence tests, for example, and you let toddlers of two years old compete with, say, pigs, mm -hmm. the pigs win most of the time. I mean, that's something you should keep in mind the next time you eat bacon. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty astonishing, actually, that human beings are not that special individually. Mm. But as a group, we are incredible, right? So as a group, we can cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. And our true 
superpower here is our capacity for kindness and friendliness. Mm. So what biologists have shown is that actually for thousands of years, for millennia, when we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, there was this process that they called survival of the friendliest. So it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation, which is, again, very much the opposite, opposite of, the, of the old story of evolution, which is sort of about survival of the strongest and then, you know, the who's most evil and selfish, etc. No, no, no. The real superpower of human beings is that we can cooperate and you need friendliness for that. I'm going to stay with the chapter on the death of Catherine Genovese because I remember how much of an impact reading studies around her death made on me as a young student of sociology. So here's an excerpt from your book which references an article in the New York Times about that murder in 1964. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Now, does that chapter seek to challenge the bystander effect that when in a group everybody assumes that everybody else is going to step forward and the tragedy uh, with the death of Catherine Genovese was nobody stepped forward because nobody wanted to get involved? Or is the point of that chapter to raise to our attention data that you uncover about who was really an eyewitness and who really wasn't? So this is obviously one of the most famous homicides that, you know, was committed in the 20th century in the United States. Uh, and it became famous because supposedly 37 people had, you know, watched uh, while Kitty Genovese was, you know, stalked around the streets of, uh, of New York. And uh, no one had even called the police. That was the, st the story that, that was reported in the, near, in the New York Times. And to be honest, I used to believe this. I thought... That, that it was a perfect example of this so-called bystander effect, which which says that, you know, when there's an emergency, you know, someone's drowning or someone's being attacked in the street, and a lot of people see it happening, that supposedly people don't do anything because they don't feel responsibility. And they're like, you know, someone else can intervene. I don't have to do that. I used to believe all of that. Uh, it, the, I really changed my mind when I stumbled upon the research of a Danish psychologist, uh, Marie Lindegaard, who's done terrific research into this question, uh, what she basically did is she analyzed CCTV footage of real incidents. So not, you know, laboratory experiments, but real incidents in the real world in four cities, in Amsterdam, in Copenhagen, in uh, London and in uh, um, Cape Town. She, she collected more than a thousand videos of how people actually behave. And she discovered that in 90% of all cases, people actually intervene and if there are more people watching i mean the odds that someone will help you is it only rises goes up because people find support in each other so this is pretty astonishing i think because a whole research tradition basically 40 50 years of research i mean we could just throw it away because in real life instead of you know the laboratory experience but in real life people actually help each other Amazing, really amazing. Does your book prove once and for all that Machiavelli was wrong? Well, I mean, <laughs> it depends on it depends on uh, what you're talking about. So, in normal circumstances, Machiavelli's thesis about how to get power 
was wrong, right? So we know, for example, if you study nomadic hunter-gatherers, if you study just average people working together in a group, then Machiavellian behavior is not going to get you anywhere. People don't like you, you know, they will shame you, they will expel you at some point. Uh, it's not going to work, you know, selfishness is not going to make you the leader. Instead, you see in most organizations, actually, that people who are seen as friendly and cooperative are elected as leaders because, you know, they're more likable and, and the group likes them. Um, but if you live in a very hierarchical society, you find a different process. And then you see that Machiavellian behavior actually starts paying off at the top. And this is because of a very fundamental process that, you know, we've seen many times in history and we still see it today in our society. And it's simply called power corrupts. Yes. So power is an incredibly dangerous drug, basically. It disconnects you from other people. It it sort of, how do you say that, dampens your empathy. And um, in, in some ways, some psychologists say that the effects of power are like literally damaging your brain because yes. you cannot really feel as well what other people are feeling uh, as you can normally do. Yes, I read that study. I, I, lo I love this book because you talk about reading a book and how important that is to becoming a human being. Why is reading a book seemingly a prescription to a view of mankind that allows us to believe that at our core we are good? Well, you know, I think that our theories of human nature can be self-fulfilling prophecies. So, I mean, I should get this straight. I can't, I cannot say that we are, you know, naturally good or that we are born to be good or that we are angels. I mean, mm. clearly we're not. Mm -hmm. um, we are maybe the, the friendliest species in the whole animal kingdom, but we're also the cruelest species, right? We, we do wars, ethnic cleansing, genocides, you name it. And, and that's, that is unique in the animal kingdom. I've never heard of a penguin that says, you know, let's lock up another group of penguins and exterminate them. These are singularly human crimes. But what I am saying is that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if we assume that most people are selfish and evil and violent, then we'll start to design a society that will basically create that kind of behavior in other people. Now, if we assume that most people can be creative and cooperative, and if we design our institutions around that idea, I think we can have a revolution and move to a very different kind of society. So you're well known as, as the man who's taken down millionaires or billionaires. In terms of truth telling, what did you most want to get out to the world with this book? One of the great ironies or paradoxes of my book is that in the first place, I argue that human beings have evolved to be friendly, right? And that we nowadays have a mistaken view of human nature often and that we designed our institutions in the past 30 to 40 years, you know, around the idea of selfishness mm -hmm. and that we paid a very high price, you know, in terms of loneliness, in terms of inequality. And I think we we need to change that. Um, but the great paradox is that actually progress often comes from people who are a little bit unfriendly. Right. So if you look at the great milestones of civilization, the way I see them, you know, whether you talk about democracy or the rise of the welfare state or equal rights for men and women, hmm. these were all utopian fantasies once. And the people who first advocated them. They were seen as unrealistic and unreasonable and nasty and yes. unfriendly. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is the great paradox of my book. I think that we need to be a little bit unfriendly sometimes if we want progress, because friendliness can stand in the way of justice and of truth telling. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is that is the paradox that we need to live with. That's historian and journalist Rudger Bregman. 
talking about his book Humankind. It's a terrific read. Prepare to be challenged. I'm Michelle Martin. Keep reading. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.